In the key verse from the Bible passage that we read this morning, Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I don't know about you, but that raises some questions in my mind when I read a statement like that. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, when he made that statement, what did Jesus want from us? And what does it mean for us to carry our cross today? I I want you to know where we're headed this morning. We're, We're in the midst of a series called Surprised by Jesus, and today we're going to talk about cross-carrying. I have no doubt that Jesus absolutely stunned his original audience back in the first century when he challenged them to carry their cross. It's an unusual statement. It's an unusual thought. It's a thought that runs against the grain of the way every human heart and every human mind is arranged. The cross was an ugly thing in the first century world. Its only purpose was to inflict a cruel pathway to a certain death. The cross was a form of punishment not akin to a peace sign. The cross was about intimidation, not a fashion statement or jewelry, right? How much things have changed from then to now. So, what images come to mind when you think of the cross or of carrying the cross? While you were thinking, I would like to show you some of the images that have run through my mind over the past few weeks as I was thinking about this particular message. Here's image number one. This this first image that comes to mind uh, when I think of of carrying the cross is a picture of Arthur Blessed. Some of you know who Arthur Blessed is. Some of you don't. But Arthur Blessed is an evangelist who was born in 1940. And in the 1960s, he began to preach to the street culture around Los Angeles to the Hells Angels, to the hippies, to the prostitutes, to on and on and on. Uh, And in 1968, he opened a coffee house that was called His Place. It was in a rented building that was right next door to a topless go-go club. Specifically, he he chose that location because he said, there are people who are going to come out of that place hurting and wanting a better option, and I want to be positioned to tell them about a better option. On Christmas Day, 1969, Blessed got this idea and he took a wooden cross that he had built to be on the inside of his coffee house and he slung it over his shoulder and he started to walk from Los Angeles to Dallas. Now, eventually he gets smart. If you look, there's a little wheel on the end of that thing. So he wasn't just dragging it on the ground, though the wheel would help propel it and move a little bit. But he felt that God was telling him to talk to people along the way who would say, why are you carrying this cross? And it gave him an opportunity to tell literally hundreds and sometimes thousands of people about Jesus and about Jesus being the center of his life. And when he got to Dallas, he did some ministry there and and set up an evangelistic operation. But he felt that over time, God was calling him to keep walking. And so right up until this day, he continues to walk across the world carrying his cross. So far, as of a few months ago in 2018, he has carried his cross over 42,279 miles, 324 countries, including island groups and territories. 54 of those countries were in open warfare at the time. And he's walked with his cross on all seven continents, including Antarctica. 
I wish I could have shown you the picture of him with snow all around him, but it was so grainy it wasn't worth putting up there. His journeys with the cross have allowed him to meet several world leaders, including George W. Bush, Billy Graham, Pope John Paul II, Yasser Arafat, and Muammar al-Gaddafi. And each time he would tell them about the cross and about why he was carrying his cross. Okay, that, that's one image. Um, can we throw up the one of Simon Cyrene, the first one? Okay, the second image that comes to mind when I think of the cross, is of Simon of Cyrene. You, you, some of you remember Simon of Cyrene. He's the man who shows up in the Gospels as Jesus is carrying his cross from the heart of Jerusalem out to Mount Calvary. And at some point, because of the beatings he's taken, the blood loss, the exhaustion, having been up all night and interrogated multiple times, he stumbles. And so a man is taken from the crowd and is thrown beside Jesus and asked to help him carry the cross. The next one shows, I think, the partnership that he had with Jesus. Now, these two images both came from the movie, The Passion of the Christ. But this is the one that grabs me when I think of this, of standing beside Jesus and in that moment, probably sharing his blood stains, his sweat, his exhaustion, wondering what's going to happen to me. Why was I picked out of all these people in the crowd? And probably for the rest of his life, as he began to was happening on that day and what Jesus has done, here's a moment he'll never, ever forget. People through the years have tried to imagine who Simon was. And an uh, interesting uh, note historically about Simon is uh, Matthew and Luke also mentioned that he was from this city of Cyrene. Uh, Mark is the gospel writer who tells us the name of his two sons, this lets us know that Simon either was then or soon became a known figure in the early church community. Acts chapter 13 mentions a group of elders, teachers and prophets who were influential in the second church ever to be formed in the city of Antioch. And among them is listed Simon, also called Niger. This, this was the second church ever to form after Jerusalem. And, and here he is, one of the elders of this, this church. The writers of black history in the Bible uh, on their website comment on this term also called Niger. It was probably pronounced Niger early on. And according to the Latin dictionary, it meant dark or black. And they note that this was not a racial term at that time, but it eventually morphed into the English word Negro. Here's the point of telling you that. It is very likely that this Simon, the only other person to ever carry Jesus' cross, was from Africa, from modern-day Libya. How fascinating that the Gospel writers reveal to us that Simon of Cyrene was most likely a black man from an African nation who comes to the aid of Jesus by helping him carry his cross. And by the, that means that by the time we get to Acts 13 and, and here in the Gospels, we're discovering African men who are among the early church elders, teachers and prophets. Artists through the years have tried to paint or to sculpt the scene. They've wondered what Simon of Cyrene really looked like. And, and they're drawn to the scene of him helping to carry Jesus' cross. But if we are interpreting this scene and the clues around it correctly... This next image may be closer to reality. 
that the Simon, who was forced into the scene by the soldiers, sharing the burden and the pain of Jesus, was most likely a black man from Cyrene, a region of Libya, making the journey of the cross a cross-cultural, multiracial reality right from the beginning. Isn't that awesome? All right. One more. This is the third major image that I want you to think about. This is the one that my mind has not been able to get away from all summer. I don't know the story behind this picture. I looked everywhere to search and to figure it out. But as you can see, there's a, there's a statue of, of Jesus who has fallen with the cross. And this little girl... She's Jesus. And I don't know what she knows. I don't know what's in her heart. But she has this in- instinct that she cannot stop. And she rushes over and she's trying to pick up the cross. Because she sees Jesus with this load in that moment that he can't carry alone. And there's something about this that will not let go of my heart and my mind. She knows something instinctually in that photo that propels her into the center of the action. You with me on that? The longer I look at that picture, I see some distinctions. This one does not involve going back into time and wondering what somebody else looked like. This is a young person living in our world, in our time, who sees Jesus and steps forward to lift up his cross, or at least to try. This young girl is not ashamed of the cross. Her task is impossible. You can't lift that cross. It's, it's part of a statue that is unbelievably heavy. It's anchored to the ground. It's probably bolted in on the bottom of that stone slab underneath. But she throws herself into it anyway. And I love that picture because it says so much to us today. Now, with that image in mind, that last one, with all of these image, images in mind, I want to draw out some lessons from Jesus' statement in Luke chapter 14 that we read a few moments ago. We're going to talk about cross-carrying today. And here's the first point, first observation. Cross-carrying flows from the context of being disciples. It flows from the context of being disciples. Let me read to you the first few verses, and then I'm going to add one more in verse 33. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then jump ahead a few verses to verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Notice, first of all, that Jesus was sifting the large crowd to find real disciples. So Luke tells us that a large crowd was traveling with Jesus. This is a clue that Luke ties to this body of teaching 
He is tying it to a period of popularity for Jesus. More determined opposition would soon follow. But at this point in time, it was easy for people to follow Jesus. And so there was a large crowd attaching themselves to Jesus and the original twelve. Notice a second important detail about Jesus' section of, of this, 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 this paragraph of Scripture. Jesus was in the, the midst of what we call narrow door teaching. In chapter 13, Jesus was asked, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? So Jesus began telling them to make sure that you enter by the narrow door. This is similar to the, the phrasing that he used back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, where he talked about the, the road being wide that leads to destruction, but a, a narrow road that, that leads to uh, the pathway to heaven. And you know, there's a wide gate and there's a narrow gate. Find the narrow gate. Here he uses the imagery of a narrow door. And he's saying not everyone will find that door. The time for entering into the company of those who are following Jesus is now because a time will come when the owner will close the door and he doesn't recognize anybody else who starts knocking at that point. And he's talking about at the end of time, this time in life is the time that we make that decision. He followed that up by warning that some people will be surprised when they are shut out. He'll think, I, I, I was there, I was with you, I did this thing, I did that thing, and Lord, don't you know me? And he'll say no. These were arresting parables that Jesus taught. And he added that there, there are some who, will, who are usually last in life who will be first, and some who are first in life who will be last when his kingdom comes. And then just prior to, to, to today's passage, Jesus told the parable of the great banquet where the invited guests made excuses for not coming. So the master had his servants fill the house with the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the parable ends with the master declaring that not one of these originally invited guests will have one taste of his banquet. I imagine that got the attention of that original audience. Now, I, I want you to add one more important third detail. It has to do with repetition. Do you notice the repetition in these verses that we just read? There's one phrase that shows up in all of those verses. Three times in today's passage, Jesus states, such a person cannot be my disciple. I don't know about you, but anytime Jesus repeats things three times, it gets my attention. It makes me realize he wants me to listen to this. He wants me to, to pay attention to this. This is important. He wants us to become disciples, but he is also warning that this is a serious deal. Some people in that crowd, perhaps even many, would soon no longer continue to follow Jesus. That is unfortunately true of most crowds and maybe even most crowds in most churches, that there are some people here that within a month or season or a year will no longer continue on the pathway toward following Jesus. That's a sad, sobering reality. So all this begs a question. What is a disciple of Jesus? Now, some of you have been around here for a long time may be familiar with the classic definition that I have used many, many times that a disciple is a learner 
who is attached to a master in order to learn the master's way of teaching and then to employ that body of teaching in his or her life. That's the, that's the classic view of what a disciple was and is today. But Jesus now adds another thought to that that enriches it. That a true disciple puts following Jesus ahead of everything else. That's the dominant thought that rises from this whole paragraph. So here's our big idea for this morning. True disciples put following Jesus ahead of everything. True disciples put following Jesus ahead of everything in life. So our first observation is that cross-carrying flows from the context of being disciples. Here's the second observation. Cross-carrying is a mindset more than a one-time act. Verse 27 is the key verse. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. How should we interpret this challenge to carry your cross and follow Jesus? Now, I'd like to suggest that there are three interpretive options. The first is that we could take the literal option. In other words, true disciples of Jesus should pick up crosses and carry them every day. If that was Jesus' intention, then only a very small handful of people throughout all history have ever truly been the kind of disciples he was looking for. And we should all follow the pathway of Arthur Blessed and each craft and carry our own wooden crosses with us wherever we go, down the street, to work, wherever we go, maybe listening for whispers to go to different cities, carrying, you know, 12 foot by 6 foot wooden crosses on our shoulders. How many of you ever done that? I I thought that was the answer I was going to get, so I haven't either. Please don't misunderstand me. I am not knocking the evangelistic work of Mr. Blessed. The point is, we are not all called, and it becomes rather obvious, we are not all called, in this case, interpret this particular challenge in the most literal fashion. You with me? Okay, here's a second option. We could take the symbolic interpretive option. So in this approach, Jesus' cross was to carry our sins to Calvary, to suffer, to die, to rise again. But our cross might be something else. A difficult job, a pain in life, a tough relationship, a difficult spouse. Some people say, oh yeah, that's just my, my cross in life. I've got to carry him through it. I've got to carry her through it. And folks, there are many, many... Church-going, Bible-reading Christians who interpret this particular challenge exactly that way. But it really has nothing to do with the cross of Christ. Then there's a third option. It's the one I think we should take. It's the contextual option. Thus, we interpret this phrase, take up your cross, to mean that we put Jesus ahead of everything else. Jesus knew that he was testing this large crowd and that he was sifting them. Oh, some will follow him when he's popular, but just wait until the opposition rises and they'll leave. In this case, though, if we're looking at the context, to pick up your cross means to be willing to let self-interest die in order to follow Jesus. And so each of the other little statements that are embedded in this paragraph all tie into that theme about putting Jesus ahead of everything else in our priorities. 
true disciples put following Jesus ahead of everything. And then there's a third observation. Cross-caring is about loving others less than we love Jesus. It's about loving other people less than we love Jesus. Now, that may sound really strange to you, so I have to unpack that for you. We jump to verse 26. Here Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, some people might read that and say, this is absolutely nuts. I'm not buying into that. I'm done with Christianity. If you're tempted to do that, I would like to challenge you to look deeper because you're only looking through a 21st century lens in the way that we use language today and that what Jesus may be saying is lost in the translation between his culture and the time that he walked the earth in and our culture today. Does Jesus literally want you to hate your father, your mother, your brothers and sisters? I have to say, that's not a very attractive evangelistic technique. (laughs) Let's start off. You become a Christian. You start to put your faith in Jesus. and, And now the first commandment that you get is hate everybody else around you, especially your own family. I don't think that's what he had in mind. What did he have in mind? And how did Christianity grow if this was the case? Hate in Hebrew does not necessarily mean what it means in English. Dr. Eli Lazorkin Eisenberg is the scholar behind Israel Bible Center. If you ever look them up online, uh, they do some really neat research, one word a day, in taking us deeper into understanding biblical Hebrew. In his Lost in Translation blog, he explains that the word hate in Old Testament Hebrew does not have the same connotation that the modern sense of the word hate has in our English vernacular today. In Malachi 1.3, for instance, in the Old Testament, the Bible says that God loved Jacob but hated his brother Esau. Yet you find out when you look further back in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 33 that God actually blessed Esau and made him wildly successful and wealthy. So hate in that situation cannot mean what hate often means in English. Hate in that situation meant that for some reason God loved Jacob more than he loved his brother Esau. And he chose Jacob for a very special mission in life, and Jacob becomes the father of the the twelve patriarchs of the Old Testament community. Again, in Genesis Genesis 29-31, we find that Jacob had two wives, and they were sisters, Leah and Rachel. If you haven't read the story, you've got to read it. He was tricked into marrying one while he thought he was marrying the other. You know, the party was so wild, he didn't notice until the next morning that dad had slipped in the wrong sister, wanting to marry her off first. And so then he works another seven years for the right to marry the sister, too. But he loved Rachel from the beginning. The King James Bible says the Lord saw that Leah was hated. However, the previous verse says that Jacob's love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. That helps us understand. He, he, he loved Leah, but he didn't love Leah the way he loved Rachel. Leah's the one he was tricked into marrying. Rachel was the one that he always had a heart for. So hate 
in the Old Testament does not necessarily mean what hate tends to mean in our culture. Then she reveals something now about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus was using a figure of speech that first century Jewish people would have naturally understood right away. I think that most people read Jesus' statement about hating family members today. They scratch their heads and say, that can't mean what I think it means. And they move on to something else. If you've done that, you've partially done the right thing, but you've also left something behind. In ancient Hebrew, hate didn't mean what we think it has to mean today. So what does, it, what does Jesus mean as he uses this statement? He's saying, in effect, that a true disciple puts Jesus ahead of everything, even family. And it doesn't mean that you don't love your family, but that you love Jesus so greatly that he takes first place. And if push comes to shove between Jesus and family, God forbid that that would ever have to happen for you. But we choose Jesus in that moment over being understood and embraced as being just the same as family. Why would he say something like that? The simple reason is that some people have to make this kind of choice. A few years ago, I I read... Uh, Seeking Allah But Finding Jesus, one of my favorite books that I've read in the last decade, by a man named Nabil Qureshi. Nabil was raised as a very strict Muslim, and he loved all of the worship practices that were part of this very obscure, small sect of Islam that his family was a part of. But he became a Christian while he was in medical school. The process had started when he was a college student, and he had a roommate who was a devout Christian, and they explored each other's faiths and belief systems. And what he finally started to realize is that there were some things, after years of study, that made no sense in Islam and that Jesus was calling to him even more. But he knew that to choose Christ meant that his family would disown him. And the day finally came when he told his parents, whom he loved greatly, And it was just an agonizing chapter in the book as he summoned up the courage to go and tell them about his faith in Jesus and why he loved Jesus, knowing full well that his father would kick him out of the house and that his family would begin to shun him. And there's this tearful scene where everybody's a mess because they knew that his choosing Christ meant that in their family, they could have nothing to do with him going forward. Sometimes... That kind of choice actually happens. But for Nabil to embrace his Savior, having already experienced the love and the joy of Christ and knowing that he was loved by God, it mattered more than everything else in the cosmos. He never stopped loving his family. But he realized in that moment that he loved Jesus even more. True disciples put following Jesus ahead of everything. This is what Jesus wants. He wants us to be true disciples who put him ahead of every other choice, every other pursuit in life. What does that mean? It means we put Jesus ahead of your job, even though you are radically committed to your job. It means that you put Jesus ahead of your dreams and you alter your dreams. If Jesus is pushing you in a different direction, 
It means that you put Jesus ahead of your ambitions. And sometimes your goals and your ambitions will change because serving Jesus redirects those ambitions. And you find yourself on a different path. It means putting Jesus ahead of material pursuits that the goal in life isn't just to possess the most and have the most and be thought of as the most successful person around. It actually shifts toward using the things that he puts in our hands to engage with God and to build up what God is doing in this world and to find satisfaction in that. And sometimes it even means putting Jesus ahead of your family. Where there are those who will ridicule and mock you or want nothing to do with you because of your faith. But you choose Jesus anyway. True disciples put following Jesus ahead of everything. That's what he was saying here in Luke 14. Is there anything that you have put ahead of following Jesus? If so, that will be an obstacle for further growth, for further faith development in your life. And you're going to have to wrestle with why you value that more than you value Jesus. And so Jesus ends with this conclusion. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. That means let this sink in. Think about it long and hard. Think about it soberly. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. True disciples, what you and I want to be, is challenging. It means that the art of following Jesus puts him ahead of everything else we love. And there we find out how much we are loved in return. Let's pray. God, thank you for these wonderful songs that we have sung today. Thank you for the scriptures that have been read that teach us that you are at the center of everything and you are the one who holds everything together. And I pray that you would give us the calling, the heart, the integrity, the ability to wrestle with scripture to come to grips with your call here to put you in the center of our lives, not just in the center of our emotions when we worship together and sing songs together, but the center of our lives so that we will find our deepest, highest purpose in being used by you and knowing your strength, knowing your consoling power, knowing your direction, knowing your calling in life. Lord, I pray for North River Community Church. I'm not praying that there are great numbers that would come in here because I'm not sure that's your primary goal. Love to see it. But I'm praying that those of us who are part of North River would continue to become true disciples where Jesus is at the center of our lives and where Jesus is clearly holding everything together in terms of who we are how we act, what we do, how we carry ourselves day in and day out. So, Lord, we, we pray that prayer again that we've already sung. Jesus, be the center of my life, of our lives. It's in your name we pray to the Father. Amen.